Hello, captives and captive friends, and welcome to episode 34 of the Global Captive Podcast, supported by legacy specialist RQ. My name is Richard Kutcher, and as ever, we have a captive packed 30 minutes or so ahead of us. Do remember, you can find every episode of the Global Captive Podcast on any app or platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Later in this episode, we will have the second quarterly investments update from friends of the podcast, London and Capital, making sense of a truly tumultuous period for the economy. And our captive owner interview will be with Andrew Falk, Senior Vice President of Asset Management at SL Green Realty, a Manhattan-based real estate investment trust with captives in New York and Vermont. But first, I am very excited to welcome our guest co-host for the episode. Laura Langone is Head of Insurance Operations at Airbnb. But in this interview, we are very much welcoming Laura in her capacity as President of RIMS, the Risk Management Society. Laura, welcome to the pod. Thank you, Richard. Laura, could you perhaps just uh, begin by giving our listeners some of the background on, on your risk management career and your current role? Sure. I started my career as an AIG underwriter, working in large accounts and uh, worked out of Boston. Uh, worked in their New York office, Paris office, which was a European headquarters, working on very large accounts. And from there, I worked in brokerage and made my way into insurance consulting and then finally risk management. I had the opportunity to be an outsourced risk manager when I was at Johnson & Higgins years ago in Silicon Valley wow. and got to sit in the seat of different types of risk managers. And it was a really interesting opportunity. Um, my first opportunity as a risk manager was with Oracle here in the Bay Area. And I realized that, you know, I underwrote programs, I sold uh, insurance programs, if you will, and advised, uh, provided advisory, but I didn't really understand what it meant to implement and to really drive these programs uh, within an organization. So once I saw that opportunity, um, I was just, you know, caught and uh, very excited about uh, about being an internal consultant, if you will. And that's how I really mm. my role in risk management is really as an advisor, an internal consultant, really looking at opportunities now to uh, have transparency for risk and look at the business decisions for, you know, offsetting some of those risks or mitigating those risks. Fantastic. So in terms of captives, obviously, this is a captive podcast. What, what are your experience? Uh, what kind of experience have you had working with captives uh, uh, during your career? Yes. In, you know, when I was a broker, obviously worked with a lot of Silicon Valley high tech companies as they were looking at setting up captives. In those days, it was really around a lot of the, the uh, tech companies had more capital, if you will, than even uh, insurance companies, right? And so they really questioned the reliance on the capital of some of the insurance companies and started to look at, should they be setting up captives to look at their own risks? Namely, at that time, you know, obviously cyber risk and other types of exposures that really there weren't great solutions at the time uh, in the marketplace, um, as well as risks that they could easily assume, right, given their cash flow uh, and their capital. So I, I advised uh, companies like Microsoft to advise companies at the time like Sun Micro Systems. These are This is going back a while, but uh, mm. I also worked at Towers Parent and so conducted a lot okay, of... Okay, yeah. Yeah, conducted... The, Hugh, Hugh Rosenbaum and, and co and all those guys. Yes, and, and really uh, worked on captive feasibility studies. But again, it was really about, you know, is it feasible? 
it wasn't about, you know, how do you implement it, right? Um, I didn't really have a, a sneak pe- preview, if you will, as to how difficult it was to actually get buy-in internally to actually uh, get a captive up and running, right? Yeah, I mean, that is that is definitely a, which a challenge we talk about a lot on this podcast is internal buy-in, not even just at the setup stage, but, you know, ongoing internal buy-in and justifying the existence of the captive internally. You know, why do we have this vehicle in, in whatever domicile it's in uh, sitting there? It's, it's obviously important to continue to justify that. Yes, I believe so. And I actually think that, you know, captives and alternative risk really needs to be a tool. Uh, a traditional tool, if you will, that any risk manager should have as part of their, you know, their long-term plan. Uh, if you think about treasury and financial risks, right, we look at, you know, should we do basic hedging? Should we do cash flow hedging? Should we have more sophisticated options, right? So as you think about a captive, it's really the same type of analysis. Should we go to the traditional marketplace and buy insurance because the risk-adjusted return on that on that capital makes sense? Or should you be leveraging another alternative type of solution, which is frankly a captive or some type of integrated program, right? I think where people get caught off guard is they think it's one, very difficult, very, very, very hard to do, very costly. They think it's more of an ad hoc versus something that's in your um, bailiwick, if you will, in terms of some of the tools that you should just be thinking about. And I often think that senior leadership is very worried about getting stuck into a captive and not knowing how to leverage that captive during soft market times, right? I think it's a lot easier when you're going through a hard market, but then when there's a soft market, it's really hard to then make some of those justifications. And so your exit strategy around a captive, or again, your long-term use of a captive is critical. And I think that's you know, really how risk managers and treasurers and finance leaders should be thinking through you know, the use of alternative risk financing opportunities and solutions. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, we find ourselves in an extremely hard market and, and hardening market today with some you know, quite eye-watering uh, rate increases being experienced across many lines. I, I'm obviously much closer to the UK market and through my role at Airmic, and I'm, I'm hearing about those um, increases firsthand. I'm sure you're hearing similar things from your peers in the US. How, how do you assess the insurance market's kind of communication with the clients and you know, RIMS members uh, during this period? And, and could they be doing more, do you think, to support their clients in what is a, a very tough environment. Yes, I think I think the brokerage community is doing a very good job of you know uh, letting their clients know what's going on in the market. I think it is a very fast evolving market, and I believe you know the reinsurance market, namely as well as some of the carriers, you know, in terms of uh, primary carriers, uh, retail carriers, are really getting their hands around the long term implications. So I do see the market changing significantly. We we entered this year and I think more late last year we entered the market realizing that, you know, certain lines were hard, right? We're hardening. Um we saw the umbrella marketplace, you know, just over the years in terms of premium erosion, right? You know, start to harden somewhat. Um but with COVID, I think what I'm seeing is that as insurance companies are getting data, they're quickly able then to adjust and communicate out what the impact is. But obviously, you know, early March, when everything hit, it was very, very difficult for the insurance companies to react. And and then, you know, I think that was where we really, if you were doing a renewal at that time, probably very, very difficult, right? Um, just not knowing mm. what's really going on. I think, you know, insurance companies are driven by data. Uh, brokers 
workers and, and you know, and, and their clients really need good data to be able to communicate effectively their program and what's happening. And without that, it is really hard then to figure out well, what's going to be the impact of the market, right? Um, how do I differentiate myself? So I do believe, you know, we are also like any hard market or any any catastrophe, if you will, the crisis such as COVID right now, COVID nineteen, especially with the um, the rollbacks, right? And I think this is what everyone was anticipating. What then would that impact be on the economy long term? You know, the global economy, your local economy, etc., and the impact of the market specifically by geography or by book of business. And I think that's what you also have to look at. And so that's what we're waiting to understand as well. Will this be, you know, as we start to see a huge hardening, you know, if things do light, let up and there is a vaccine or, you know, if you're in a specific industry, will you have a different result? Or is just, is this the opportunity for the insurance marketplace to also to make a, you know, right size, right? In terms of yeah. uh, where they were. And I think you're seeing a little bit of both, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Certainly hearing kind of price correction used a yes, lot, right. uh, that that kind of language being used. In terms of, you've, you've touched a little bit actually already, but in terms of any advice you might have for risk professionals, obviously we've, it's been quite a while since we had our last hard market. So there's plenty of risk professionals um, in jobs now that won't have experienced one before. Would there be any kind of advice you might have for those who are, who are going through a hard market for the first time? Uh, yes, I think, you know, definitely, you know, you can leverage organizations like RIMS. We have a lot of good re- good research and good white papers mm-hmm. on historical uh, ebbs and flows and how to uh, make decisions around, again, um, managing through a hard market. You know, speaking to your brokers, obviously, in terms of all of your available options, including captives and alternative risk programs. I mean, alternative risk is probably a little bit more esoteric, if you will, if you really, you know, that's probably not with a market. It wants to go, except where you're going to be taking higher retentions, obviously, right? And maybe more co-insurance. You know, I don't really call that alternative, but I do think uh, companies should be exploring uh, opportunities with captives, with um, sell captives if they don't already have something set up. You know, and and a lot of the ins- brokers actually have some participation or sales that you can work with. That that's an approach too, right? How do you how do you leverage what's already out there if you haven't already set up a captive to be able to get additional capacity or to offset some risk, or, you know, etc. Well, I'm glad you mentioned uh, sell captives, Laura. Our, our next episode next week is actually going to be about sell captives and sell captive governance, particularly in the in the US. So that's quite a nice lead in. Thank you for that. Well, we're now going to hear from uh, captive owner Andrew Falk at SL Green Realty. Andrew is senior vice president of asset management with responsibility for risk and insurance, and he began prov- by providing the profile of the real estate investment trust. SL Green is a publicly traded REIT. SL Green is the uh, largest office landlord in New York City, uh, owning about 29 million square feet of commercial space and having uh, debt positions on about another 20 million square feet. So uh, we have interests in uh, various properties in Manhattan, uh, close to 50 million square feet. Uh, in terms of the captive that SL Green has, uh, it's in New York, which, as, I, as I've always told you before uh, in previous meetings and discussions, that uh, you know it's rare that I meet a, a captive owner where the captive is in New York. Can you just tell us a little bit about when the captive was formed and and, and why the captive uh, was formed in the first place? 
We we actually now have two captives. Um, oh wow, this is this is news to me, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, it, it 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 evolved over time. Um, we have one in Vermont, which is uh, a little more recent, and we Great. can we can get back to that one uh, in in a bit. But the uh, original captive was formed in uh, two thousand six. We looked at you know a, a lot of different domiciles. Uh, we we needed to be domestic uh, to take advantage of Tria, and uh, because the vast majority of SL Green's ownership is in New York, specifically New York City. For tax purposes, there were a lot of advantages to forming uh, in New York State. Uh, so really, for those reasons, we did so. Forming in New York State has its own issues and challenges with a regulator yeah. that's changed over time, uh, has you know not been uh, the most nimble uh, with respect to captive insurance companies. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so, so what do the, the two captives ensure today? The captive was originally, uh, like most real estate captives, took advantage of TRIA, the terrorism insurance, and the, the federal backstop provided by TRIA and subsequent uh, passings of, of that bill. We, I think, unlike many real estate owners, have used our captive quite extensively beyond TRIA. Uh, we really look at risk management as an extension of our investment arms and, and our asset management and investment thinking. We don't mind taking risk and we like to take risk, uh, calculated risk, and we try to look for various opportunities to do so and use the captive uh, in those capacities. So aside from terrorism, uh, we write NBCR, which is you know, yet sort of an extension of terrorism. We write several uh, deductible buy downs on our corporate lines: ENO, DNO, uh, discrimination, and an environmental liability policy. But probably the most sort of transformative line we write for the co- the company is we take a very large retention or, or a, a relatively large retention on our general liability policy. And this has really caused us to rethink how we operate our buildings, how we control and mitigate risks uh, when there is a slip and fall, how we respond to it, how we document it. Uh, So it's really just changed our whole philosophy on how we run and manage our buildings uh, with risk management in the back of our minds. I mean, you and I, Andrew, I think the first time we met was about four or five years ago when all this controversy kicked off around the, the Federal Home Loan Bank and captives membership of that. And the FHFA, FHFA seems to be divided itself sometimes on whether it thinks it's a good idea or not. And it's, lots of its members seem to be divided. I know that your, your, your New York captive has been a member of, of uh, the Federal Home Loan Bank system. Can you explain why that has been viable for your captive to be a member? And, and also, what is the current state of play? Because there was kind of a, you know, a period of unraveling all, all of that stuff. Uh, not only was there a period of unraveled, but it, it unraveled for us. But then okay, we yeah. gained re-entry into uh, the banking system. So I'll, and that, that led to our second captive in Vermont. So I guess maybe just to take a little step back, you know, SL Green has had a captive, as we spoke about, you know, since about 2006. Uh, and we use our captive extensively as a true kind of insurance risk management platform. Many other uh, REITs formed captives really 
you know, kind of for the purpose of joining the federal home loan bank, because as a an insurance company that's regulated, it allowed uh, membership into the federal home loan bank system. SL Green had a very active residential and commercial mortgage lending business. That's a, a complementary business to our, our main business of, of owning real estate. So we, we had both of these elements, and it was really sort of putting these two pieces together where we realized membership in the Federal Home Loan Bank would allow us to expand and enhance our, our lending business. And, and so we gained access through our captive insurance company that was domiciled in New York. However, uh, the regulator, the FHFA, came out with a ruling that terminated the membership of certain members that joined after a certain time period. Uh, so we actually exited uh, the banking system. Our membership was terminated. But then we subsequently acquired a grandfathered captive insurance company that had a five-year uh, horizon on its membership rather than a one-year uh, exit requirement. So we actually acquired the shell company, renamed it, and you know that's our Vermont captive, and we have continued to use uh, Federal Home Loan Bank to complement our lending business. That membership does expire uh, in 2021, and there are a lot of efforts, both you know, lobbying, legislative, and working with the regulator to try to extend membership. I think that's definitely one to keep watching then. I mean, I, I remember uh, the days, particularly when I lived in New York, Andrew, and we spoke more regularly, almost every month or every two months, there was another update on the FHFA's position. You know, whatever way it goes, of course, it'd be great for yourselves to keep membership. It'd be nice for it to be settled at least so you know what some certainty is. On the other, the other area we used to talk about, and, you, and you've mentioned already, is Tria. I know that you, you're, you're a big fan and you, you use Tria a lot. There now moves uh, to produce a, a pandemic equivalent, uh, kind of otherwise known as PRIA. I believe it's in in Congress at the moment. Uh, have you looked into this much? Would you would you welcome such a, a new kind of pandemic related backstop? And do you think you'd explore your captive or captives accessing such a backstop in the future if it was available? Uh, we certainly would. You know, this is just a situation that is hard to underwrite. No one really saw coming. And you see the devastating impact on the broader economy. So it's definitely something we would support. We hope it can move through Congress. And I think the sort of the underlying structure of TRIA perhaps is a, a good starting place uh, to build upon. But, uh, you know, a PRIA w- would be a very interesting you know, opportunity for us to, to, to look at, uh, uh, you know, and I'll tell you, aside from, you know, a, a federal backstop, we actually have been in, in some serious discussions with a major reinsurance company to do really kind of a direct policy where, you know, the captive might share in some losses and co-share uh, in a vertical stack on business interruption. So we're, we're not waiting for PRIA. We're, we're, and we're really sort of a, a test model uh, for this carrier in looking at a major owner in a, in a large city in dealing with, with a pandemic. Great. Well, I definitely want to, to watch as well. And maybe I'll check back in a year, Andrew, and, and see how that's, how that's developed. And then looking to the future, um, is there any other areas, lines particularly, which you haven't historically written through the captive that you think might now be the time or might be appropriate to do so? Uh, we're always looking to 
use our captive in creative ways. A few years ago, we started uh, the construction of the second largest office building, second tallest office building in, in Manhattan. The address is One Vanderbilt, and it's a, an entire city block directly across the street from Grand Central Terminal. And given its location, square in the middle of Midtown, near public transport, iconic Grand Central, you know, placing the terrorism coverage on that, which required $2 billion of coverage, was quite challenging. Uh, so we were able to use our captive to access the, the reinsurance markets and we saved uh, a tremendous amount of money on our builder's risk policy by stripping out the terrorism component and and running uh, the majority of that through our captive. So, you know, these lar- large scale developments, given the, our location and concentration of other risks uh, in and around Grand Central, really led to the opportunity to to use our captive. Um, we have other you know, more large development pipe uh, projects in our pipeline where we hope to be able to replicate that structure again. You know, there you, you never know where the next uh, opportunity comes, but the nice thing is we have a proven track record using the captive and our management understands and appreciates how we use the captive. So is always looking for and, and open to uh, new ideas, whether we execute on them or not. You know, there's always uh, another harebrained idea that may or may not uh, hit, but uh, they're, they're very receptive to you know, looking at uh, new opportunities to use it. It's, it's been a, a great platform for us. The Global Captive Podcast is supported by RQ, the award-winning provider of exit solutions for legacy liabilities and companies in runoff. R&Q can provide a wide range of solutions and has A-rated paper across the United States and Europe. LPTs, novations, business transfers and acquisition are all frequently used and tailored to the seller's requirement whether in runoff or fully active but seeking greater efficiency. If you have legacy, you should talk to R&Q. We will be back with Laura Langone, president of RIMS, shortly. But now it is time for our latest quarterly investments update from friend of the podcast, London and Capital. In this instalment, Shadrach Kwaza, executive director of London and Capital, quizzes Sanjay Joshi, head of fixed income, on the Q2 economic response to the pandemic and considerations for captives in particular. I think I'll start with the, the first question that, you know, we've, we've seems to be coming up a lot and, and it's maybe an obvious question. You know, now that we are at the end of Q2 in 2020, you know, how, Sanjay, would you, would you summarize the global macroeconomic outlook? Thanks, Adrak, and hello, everyone. Um, yeah, no, it's been an incredible year so far in clearly second quarter. Now, the way that sort of we're thinking about the macroeconomic outlook is that Clearly, we are seeing a bounce back as global economies have reopened from China all the way through Europe into the US. We've seen pent-up demand returning from the perspective of the consumer, firstly. And secondly, of course, we've also seen certain parts of manufacturing activity reopening. And all that is good news. And, you know, we are going to see somewhat positive data coming through in the next few months. And, of course, the most exciting and most surprising aspect was uh, the big jump in non-farm payrolls in the United States, where over two months, we got almost 8 million jobs being recreated, having seen 
seen that huge rise in the unemployment rate we saw in the previous two months. Having said all of that, I think we need to be a little bit careful. Uh, There's a lot of discussion about what type of alphabet recovery are we going to get? Is it going to be U-shaped, V-shaped, L-shaped, W-shaped? I think that misses the point. The best thing for all of us to focus on is two areas. First of all, how severe and how long will this labor market dislocation or, to put it simply, how long will it take for the jobs to be recreated globally? And secondly, how long will it be before companies start reinvesting in capacity, new capacity, and taking on more um, more employees? The crux of all of this, you see, is how big is the output gap going to be? How deep is the shift in productivity lower going to be? Because unless we can resolve these sorts of questions, I think it's almost meaningless to talk about what kind of recovery we're going to have. So yes, there's a recovery. We think there will be some positive growth, but the way that we see all the economic indicators and the IMF sort of backs this up is that it won't be until well into 2022 will we return to the end 2019 GDP level. So that is a prolonged period of output being lost by the global economy. And underlying that, of course, it's the wage drops that will take place, but particularly for the lower paid. And I think the social dislocation, the labor market dislocation, the capital markets dislocation, the business dislocation will have profound impact. Now, I'm not bearish in the sense that, you know, this is a new global recession, but I think we need to be careful in getting carried away by short-term data pointing upwards. Of course, underlying all of this is still remains the pandemic in the background. Will it reappear this this uh, autumn, this, this winter into next year? Uh, it, what is becoming clear is that it is unlikely that the politicians will go for a mass lockdown again because the economic consequences are just too dire. So a recovery, but a gradual recovery, not a V-shaped recovery. Thanks, Sanjay. And, and, and that is very interesting, especially g- given a lot of what you've said about how long this might take to resolve itself and, and what needs um, to happen. Mm-hmm. The next question, and, and it's an interesting question based on that, you know, given everything that governments have done and, you know, the, the amount of stimulus that has been injected into the economy, is there a view that this might lead to a kind of zombification of some companies in the West or re- sectors in, in, in the West? I think it's a critical question. I think there's two parts to it. First and foremost, I think we must look at the, the timeliness and the magnitude of the response by central banks and governments. It was necessary and it will continue. In the absence of that, we would have had a complete meltdown in the global economy and, of course, also global financial markets. The second part of the question, of course, there may well be some companies who may continue to operate even though they shouldn't. And I'll come back to that. But let's just take the monetary policy and fiscal policy response. On monetary policy, it's multi-layered, and I think this will continue for a prolonged period, and we have to get used to it, uh, which is interest rates either at the lower bound of zero or in negative territory for the next few years, quantitative easing with unlimited government bond buying, asset purchases across corporate bond markets, including high-yield bonds, and eventually 
hopefully we may see ETF equity purchases as well. And of course, finally, central banks providing liquidity to the banks and to consumers and to the corporate sector directly. And that will uh, feed into this zombification of companies question. Uh, when we look at fiscal policy, it's also multi-layered, but I think there's much, much more to come now. And I think the UK is setting the goalposts on this, given the most recent announcement we had by our Chancellor of the Exchequer last week. So multi-layered here, providing loans to companies, providing guarantees for consumers through furloughing schemes, providing liquidity beyond just the short-term basis. But then we're moving into the second phase, which is tax cuts. We've had the VAT cut for the hospitality sector in the UK. I would expect similar moves elsewhere across the globe. We're going to see significant infrastructure spending taking place. Now, these two pillars are absolutely vital. Otherwise, we would not have come through the economic uh, uncertainties we've had over the last three months. Now, I think the critical thing is, will are there some companies who are just going to limp on and they cannot survive long term? I think when you look at this, you have to look at different sectors. The retail sector, the, uh, the sector that uh, relies on footfall, was in trouble before COVID-19 and the weakest members are now clearly falling over. Um, and I think, you know, we've seen in the UK, John Lewis is closing eight stores. We've seen a number of smaller retail outlets also just closing down completely. And this, this is a global phenomenon. So I think the retail sector, clearly, uh, you have to be very careful that you don't get zombie companies continuing. But it's unlikely because neither the banks or one believes the government is going to allow these companies to continue. There's been a structural shift. And there are plenty of other sectors. I think the most important one here is the travel and hospitality areas. Can airlines continue in the way that they have done in the past? Clearly not. Um, the, these companies employ a lot of people. Uh, they may well be zombies for some time uh, because of the changing travel patterns. So yes, there are sectors that, are going to, uh, that, that will continue to limp on, but eventually one believes that the market animal spirit will weed out the weakest of these members and you may well begin to see a lot more M&A activity, uh, a lot more government intervention as well within this sector, within these sectors to ensure we get a healthier sector. Thanks, Sanjay. And, and you know, going on, on what we've we've discussed so far and, and given your points that you've made here about the economy and, and about specific sectors, so what would be your advice in terms of captive investment strategy? What asset classes and, and what sectors should they be invested in? And that is a critical question. I, I, I'm always a little bit hesitant on this being head of fixed income that I'm always going to be plugging fixed income. But I think when, you know, captive investors look at the world, they have to look at two or three key sort of determinants in terms of where they put their, uh, their, their their money at work. First of all is what kind of economic recovery are we going to get? Secondly, will monetary policy remain loose for a long time? And thirdly, will fiscal policy remain loose? And finally, where will they be areas that are going to provide a new opportunity? So when I look at that sort of macro background, Clearly, government bond markets, quasi-sovereign and high-grade bonds are very, very important part of the asset allocation because these are the sectors and the large companies that have been able to withstand the economic dislocation we've seen. They have already refinanced significantly. They have significant cash on their balance sheets. They are continuing to benefit from what is going on in terms of the global economy. A lot of these are consumer staple companies. So that is an area one would certainly continue to focus on. You then have to look at other areas that both governments, 
and consumers want for long-term uh, growth. And so here we're looking at banks, we're looking at uh, consumer staples, we're looking at tech and telecom sectors, uh, we're looking at uh, the our, our, our sort of gas water companies, um, some transport areas. So all consumer staple type companies that are absolutely critical as we come out of ground zero. And I think, you know, that is where we would say is the main focus. Now, beyond that, of course, there are opportunities in the equity market as well. The part of the equity markets that already rely on the fact that consumers are are, are that the, the consumers are coming back. Parts of the economy where we're seeing manufacturing activity reappear. The 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 pharma sector, um, the consumer staple sector, transport sector, infrastructure sectors. So I think this is how one really should look at asset allocation: is focus on the core strengths, which is high-grade corporate bonds, sovereigns, quasi-sovereigns, and add to that a barbell approach by looking at sectors that are going to benefit from what we have in terms of monetary and fiscal policy. One thing I think we should we point out is, um, of course, you know, as we go forward, be it captives or institutional investors generally, is there's a couple of very important underlying forces here, which is monetary and fiscal policy. But something that really has come into the forefront today is about the aging demographics. And it seems a long way away, 2040, 2050. But as the report came out today, there's going to be a significantly aging population coming through. And that is a natural demand for fixed income investment coming through. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, as an actuary, you've been looking at this. And I think today's report just brings to the forefront what is going on in the global economy and the global demographics. Laura, we've heard on this podcast and in other publications that obviously a hard market is a great time for captive utilization. And you've just touched upon that just before the break as well both expanding the use of existing captives and the formation of new ones. Are you um, already hearing or experiencing kind of increased captive utilization as a response to the hard market? Yes, um, we really are, right? I think the the hardest part right now is is making decisions in a reactionary mode. I think that's what's very difficult. However, what I see is treasurers or CFOs saying, well, why didn't we have a captive already, right? Or what other alternative do we have? So you are seeing great interest in the captive market. Um, you are looking at opportunities, you know, whether it be Hawaii or other other domiciles. We Airbnb has a captive in Hawaii, so that's what I'm familiar with at this time. But really leveraging and going back and saying, how else can we expand? Expand existing captives. So if you already have one, even how else can we use the captive? How quickly can we work with our uh, regulators to, you know, augment our business plans? So I'm seeing a lot of that. Um, and again, taking more risk, maybe in the umbrella space, taking more risk on an integrated line space, right, where you can offset some of the costs, right? I'm actually also hearing, um, and this is not something that we're doing, but I actually am hearing the use of uh, captives uh, in the DNO market, which for me. Yeah. Actually, you know, very new. I hadn't seen that before, so I think that's that's interesting. I'm not sure, you know, how boards would think about that, but I, as you as you think through, you know, you can get side A coverage, which is directly for the for the board uh, members themselves, but also maybe then you're leveraging and saying, well, we want to get some capital protection for the corporation themselves, and how do we set that up through the captive? So, you know, that's really interesting uh, in terms of what's uh, out there today. 
I think you're definitely seem to be reading my mind uh, today, Laura, because uh, DNO is one that I've certainly been talking about a lot in the last two weeks off offline. And um, yeah, side BNC, a, a little bit more common previously through captives and, and definitely increasingly so now. And, and what we're, I'm hearing about, I don't know if you've heard about this uh, on the side A side is actually the use of sell captives potentially. So using a, a third party sell captive, you know, owned by an Aon or a Marsh or, or someone else or a Willis Towers Watson and using a, a sell to kind of address the, the side A issues. Because obviously the DNO market is, is such a traumatized one at the moment. That's certainly where I'm hearing the, the, the worst increases taking place. That's right. And, you know, I think that's what's different about this market versus maybe, you know, years ago is that you really do see brokers responding and having programs and taking a participatory role, if you will, in risk transfer solutions, including setting up these sell captives, including providing some cat line coverage as well. So if you have a gap in your program, you really can reach out to your broker to see if they can help you fill that gap with their participation, which I think is actually really interesting as well. Just uh, lastly, Laura, um, COVID-19 has obviously only exasperated the market environment even further and and created many challenges for risk professionals and and for the insurance market, as as you touched upon at the beginning. RIMS voiced its support for the Pandemic Risk Insurance Act at the beginning of June. The proposed legislation will effectively create a federal program that provides a shared public and private compensation for business interruption losses resulting from a pandemic or outbreak of communicable, communicable disease. Not not too dissimilar to TRIA, as I understand it. Laura, why is uh, RIMS uh, supporting this legislation? Uh, thank you, Richard. Yes, I mean, we, we see this as integral to, um, again, looking at catastrophic planning. You know, when you think about TRIA, terrorism, when you think about pandemic, when you think about uh, climate, these are truly global issues that without public and private insurance company support really cannot be funded in the appropriate way that they need to be. In addition to that, when you think about these individual risks on corporations, and I take my own company, I take my industry, how do you think about financing those, right? Is it one industry, one company? How can you competitively do that without something like, without PRIA, right? Um, Um, I think this is really one of the fallbacks. And the other side of it is, do we really want to get ourselves into a situation like this again, where it's all a fallback on the government? So, you know, you really need both, but you also really need the funding. And if you can start to have participation and opt in, you know, uh, where you have broad broad uh, pooling, right, of these types of exposures and risk and premium, then you can offset some of those costs in the long run. We see this as essential. Um, and we do believe it is a public and a private partnership. Um, we do believe it needs to address small business as well as well as large. And we do believe that you need market participation over Yeah, absolutely. Definitely one to keep an eye on and to see how it progresses. And obviously, we're having similar discussions here in the UK, uh, a slightly different model. But I think we're going to see a lot of these um, kind of government interventions on on pandemic and maybe other wider enterprise risks as well. But Laura, uh, that's all we have time for this week. I'd just like to say thank you to to all of our guests, Andrew Falk at SL Green Realty, Shadrach Kwaza and Sanjay Joshi at London and Capital. And of course, Laura Langone, president of RIMS. Laura, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Richard. Stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, captives.